0: Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series.
1: Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, deputy director and fellow with the Aerospace Security Project.
0: And I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program.
1: And on this week's episode, we're talking about on-orbit servicing, assembly, and manufacturing. I'm psyched. We are joined by two incredible experts, Dr. Pavia Lal. She is the Senior Advisor to the NASA Administrator for Budget and Finance. And Joe Anderson, Vice President of Operations and Business Development for Space Logistics, LLC. I have some questions on
0: acronyms that would be really helpful for me before we discuss. Caitlin, so I'm going to ask you. It's like trivia. It is. OSAM.
1: So OSAM is On Orbit Servicing, Assembly, and Manufacturing. So we kind of break it down during the episode, but servicing is like fixing something. Mm. Assembly is building something and manufacturing is also kind of building something in a little bit different way. But that is a pretty much a catch all term for fixing and building on orbit.
0: I saw you panicking there, trying not to use the word in the definition.
1: I am trying not to use the word in the Assembly definition. is
0: the assembly. <laughs> okay, next acronym, MEV or NEV?
1: Mev, as in meteor, mm, sticking with the space thing. So the Mev is a mission extension vehicle. It's a type of spacecraft designed to extend the life of another spacecraft on orbit, and it is the type of spacecraft that uh, Joe's company, Space Logistics, launched into space just a couple years ago.
0: Got it. So M as in Mancy for all you Archer fans out there. <laughs> Geoorbit.
1: Geo-orbit is geosynchronous orbit. So the geo-orbit is about 36,000 kilometers beyond our atmosphere. It's kind of the farthest away that we typically put satellites. And what's really special about it is that when you're that far out, the satellite orbits at the same speed as the Earth rotates. So basically, the satellite is just kind of like parked over one spot on Earth, usually the equator or somewhere near it. Isn't that geostationary orbit? So geostationary orbit is part of geosynchronous orbit, just a very, it's like a subset. Got it. Awesome. We'll talk about that. How about LEO? LEO is low Earth orbit where the International Space Station resides, along with a lot of our satellites. And so those are much closer to the Earth. And about 90 percent, this is not factual, about 90 percent of our satellites are probably in LEO.
0: Got it. So then there's two other phrases that I think we talked about. So tyranny of launch?
1: Sure. So the tyranny of launch is like a very tech term in the space community, which is kind of like colloquially as the payload mass increases. So as the satellite itself gets heavier or the mass increases, it gets bigger. You also need more fuel so that the launch vehicle can break Earth's gravitational pull. So basically, the heavier satellite, the bigger rocket you need, the more fuel you need. Fuel equals expensive. So the bigger satellite you build, the more money you're spending on this. And it's kind of just like a never-ending problem.
0: Tyranny of launch makes sense. And then our last one, Kitty Hawk moment.
1: Kitty Hawk, like the Wright brothers. The first first flight. First flight. So a Kitty Hawk moment would be something new and first-time that a technology that's revolutionary, like the airplane, is tested.
0: Got it. Little teaser for you guys. OSAM had a Kitty Hawk moment recently, and we are really excited to talk about this with Joe and Bavia.
1: Well, thank you all for being here. Lindsay and I are so excited for this discussion on on on-orbit servicing and manufacturing today. We have two incredible guests with us. First, Dr. Pavia Lal. She is a senior advisor to the NASA Administrator for Budget and Finance. And prior to that, she was with the transition team for both NASA and DOD, focusing on space, and formerly with the Institute for Defense Analyses.
2: Hello, everyone. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Lindsay, so excited to be here.
1: We're excited to have you as well. And we're excited to have Joe Anderson, He is the vice president of operations and business development for Space Logistics, LLC, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Northrop Grumman. Hey, Joe. Hi, Caitlin.
3: Hi, Lindsay. Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: Well, again, we are thrilled to talk about on orbit servicing. For me as a space nerd, this is one of the coolest new technologies uh, in orbit today, but also has so much potential for development. And so I thought we could start with Pavia just giving us a a breakdown and so that, you know, all the audience is on the same page of what is on-orbit servicing and manufacturing and why we're even pursuing a development of this capability.
2: Great question, Caitlin. Always begin with taxonomy. So on-orbit servicing is the on-orbit or, you know, in-space alteration of a satellite after its initial launch using another spacecraft to conduct these alterations. Servicing can take many forms, remote survey, relocation, refueling, repairing, replacing parts, and actually something we've only seen the Russians doing, recharging from a distance. The Northrop Grumman MEV that I bet Joe's going to talk about is a really good example of on-orbit servicing. Moving on to assembly, assembly is the on-orbit aggregation of components to constitute a space-based system. A subsystem or a full spacecraft. A really good example is actually the International Space Station, which was almost entirely assembled in space. Last, and in, 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 in my mind, this is the hardest of the three, on-orbit manufacturing, which involves the transformation of raw material into usable spacecraft components or, or, or even a full spacecraft. We have on-orbit manufacturing underway on the space station with a company called Made in Space leading the way, and, and there's probably others as well. So this brings me, Caitlin, to your next question. Why are we pursuing development of this capability? Now, with servicing, complex systems with long and evolving lifetimes, such as, you know, communication satellites can maintain their productivity and and be upgraded and repaired. So, for example, as Jim will tell us, uh, you can extend the life of a satellite and in turn increase the revenue it's going to generate. In-space manufacturing and assembly will enable, well, simply put, building in space. Imagine a world where we no longer must launch everything up fully built from the surface of Earth, but instead can manufacture everything we need in space. And we no longer need to be so worried about those first eight minutes of launch where things have to be so incredibly ruggedized because of the vibrations from, you know, that come from launching something from Earth.
3: Yeah, I think you, you described it really well, and, and you're spot on with, you know, that ultimate future of in-orbit assembly and manufacturing. You know, it's really going to be a paradigm shift that, you know, I, I use the term overcome the tyranny of launch, right, where we can, uh, you know, remove 80, 90 percent of the mass of the spacecraft we build today and, and the limitations of the launch fairing and really change, change space uh, in the future.
0: No, that's really interesting. So I, I have a couple questions. So I am actually the product of the space program. Both of my grandfathers uh, lived in Huntsville in, in Alabama, working in the early space program on the Mercury and Apollo and Gemini and, and eventually the, the space shuttle program. So the space program has been around for a bit but what is the maturity of this particular capability? Is this something that's regularly, you know, is this new today or is this something we've been doing for a while?
3: Yeah, so uh, let me tell you where Space Logistics and Northrop Grumman are with this today. And um, you're right, it's, it's been uh, the dream of many for decades to be able to do this in-orbit servicing and uh, really happy to, to say that, you know, we're making great progress on it. And I'll, I'll start with the docked life extension. Um, so at Northrop Grumman here, we've been taking a keep-it-simple approach to uh, initializing really this new industry. Uh, so we started by focusing on what we call docked life extension, where our servicer, uh, servicing vehicle will remain docked for the duration of the life extension mission. We had what I, what I now call our kitty hawk moment on February 25th of last year on, in 2020, On that day, we made history with our mission extension vehicle, or MEV as we call it, that achieved many industry firsts, including the first docking between two commercial satellites, the first docking in geo-orbit, the first time a satellite that was not designed to be docked with was docked to and, and brought back into service. And then in April of, of this year, of 2021, we did it again with a second mission extension vehicle, uh, this time docking to an active geosatellite, an active Comsat that was carrying live traffic. And I'm really proud to say our team did a fantastic job and we did it with no reported customer outages on that satellite, docking to that spacecraft and beginning the life extension. For both of those uh, missions, we are providing a five-year life extension to, to Intelsat And at the end of that mission, we will undock. And then our MEVs will go on and uh, serve other other customers, other satellites.
0: Okay, that's very cool. And it sounds like this is relatively pretty new if you had your Kitty Hawk moment just last year. So what is coming next in the pipeline? What are we working towards?
3: Right, so now we've already begun our second generation system, our servicing system, uh, that will introduce robotics into commercial servicing. It's called the Mission Robotic Vehicle, or MRV. This system is scheduled to launch in 2024. Uh, It benefits from a partnership with DARPA that is called the Robotic Servicing of Geosynchronous Satellites, or RSGS. This program will provide two flight robotic arms that have been in development and test for over, over a decade. And it'll bring in new capabilities that we can install payloads onto spacecraft, whether they're older spacecraft not designed for servicing like we do with the MEV. We can still install augmentation devices there, or we can use the vehicle to install augmentation devices on satellites in the future that are prepared for servicing. It'll also allow us to grapple satellites and relocate them or do detailed robotic inspections and, and repairs. And then really the next thing that we see in line and, and we are working on this today is, is refueling. So while NASA has really been focused on developing technologies that allow refueling of unprepared satellites uh, through their OSAM-1 program, we're focused on developing an open industry standard for prepared satellites, that is, satellites that are designed To be refueled. And I think this should be available by 2025. Our vision is that every satellite launched after 2025 is prepared for servicing in some way. And then, of course, you know, we started at the beginning here on on that little bit longer vision of on orbit manufacturing. This technology is still something in the development phase with with significant support from NASA. And there is a lot of, of development work to do regarding how we best use those capabilities. What does a satellite look like if it's manufactured and assembled in orbit, not constrained by that, that tyranny of launch uh, that I mentioned earlier?
2: Uh, Joe, if I could add to, to what you're saying, if some of the technologies that you're you're talking about, you know, as they come up the development curve, I mean, it's not just, you know, commercial revenues that go up. I mean, it transforms science. Um, so, so a very specific example, you know, putting on my NASA hat, Today, uh, the U.S. government or or what's, you know, the A-train, which is essentially a series of satellites, Earth observation satellites that closely follow one another along the same orbital track uh, operated by NASA and its international partners, you know, they make precise uh, measurements uh, from different instruments on different spacecraft at different times of the day. By leveraging some of these capabilities that Joe is talking about, you could observe and collect data from multiple instruments all at the same time on the same platform and you can upgrade these instruments because of some of these capabilities joe mentions so osam can help us beat moore's law you know we can just you know upgrade software and and hardware as we see fit and of course by being able to refuel and and add life to these uh, spacecraft this is an immortal platform
3: yeah, Bobby. If I could add to that as well, um, you know, we've we've looked at that before as well, and and developed concepts we call geotowers. So taking that same concept of the persistent platform out to geo orbit, and much like you have cell towers on you know terrestrially today, where different customers come and place a payload on it, we can do the same thing in geo orbit or Leo orbit. I mean, these these persistent platforms, so a long life, persistent platform, where now instead of Companies like Intelsat uh, having to launch complete new spacecraft, all they need to launch is a payload and that can be installed into one of these persistent platforms. So yeah, absolutely. That's a, a really exciting opportunity here for inorbit manufacturing and assembly.
2: And we're all all space geeks. Lindsay, you mentioned you are, you know, you are you come from a family of geeks. Uh, I mean the fact that we can fundamentally reconceptualize space is exciting, potentially only for us geeks, but from a broader perspective. Creating these capabilities is going to need new jobs, new skill sets, and new opportunities for our STEM education, for our science, technology, engineering, and math education. So we have the potential to kickstart a fundamentally new space economy by lowering the threshold for participation by non-traditional entities, so not just companies, but universities, our international partners. I mean, our commercial partners, like, you know, Joe's company, uh, all will play vital roles in the maturation of OSAM technology and the resulting space infrastructure that, well, and, that results and from it. we
1: are talking a lot about civil and commercial uses, but what about our national security and how would the Defense Department use this technology?
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take a first cut at that, Bobby, and then uh, then fill in for me. So. The national security, just like civil, will benefit from the same same economic benefits that our commercial customers do, right? There's just an economic benefit of extending the life of your services, of your vehicles, and getting more use out of them. There's also just the transition from one generation to the next. By extending the life, you get benefit. But more importantly, for our national security customers, it's really a step function in the level of resiliency from these capabilities that provides a freedom of action, an ability to maneuver without regret, and the ability to upgrade to match the changing threats. And these really provide, in essence, a a significant level of deterrence as well to any hostile actions by our adversaries that are emerging today.
2: Yeah, completely agree with with what Joe just said, that when we can reconstitute uh, capabilities because they can be created quickly in space, it really does prove a deterrence for the adversary who knows that they cannot take us out in space and those you know those sorts of capabilities are just not feasible with our traditional space infrastructure and our, our traditional space architectures where, you know, we have to launch everything once, you know, in a single launch and, and then uh, it has to be fully built out. With OSAM you can you can make larger structures. And uh, some of the folks in the OSAM world talk about you know, they've kind of added uh, in-space transportation as part of part of this new ecosystem. So you can, you know, with, with let's say, uh, nuclear propulsion systems that are developed and assembled in space, you can even be moving very quickly from one part of space to another. Again, a capability that's superbly important well, and to the I defense love, department. There's always
1: the, you know, the acquisition problem in DoD. And for space, it's pretty grave that the satellites we're building, by the time you know the requirements are set, they become built, they get launched. I mean, that's five to 10 years. I love the example of like, think of your iPhone and how much iteration it has been through in the last five to 10 years. And think about launching the first iPhone into space and expecting it to work in the same way when we have already far progressed in technical capability. And this just kind of, I'm not saying it solves the acquisition problem for space, but it definitely puts a bandaid on it or it at least will help uh, if we can finally update or, you know, reservice satellites. And one of the largest challenges that, that we've had in space so far is that even if you have the perfect satellite and it launches, if something happens on its way into orbit, and it doesn't deploy correctly, doesn't get into the right orbit, it breaks, for lack of a better term. You can't do anything about it. I mean, think about buying a car. And as soon as you run out of gas, or as soon as you get a warning light on, and then something stops that you can't fix it. And these are way more expensive, and way, you know, so much more important to our national security. And so to, to me, as we've said, like, this is just such a cool technology A part of my job, however, is also to look at, you know, what are the security concerns of this technology? Um, We're talking about putting robotic arms on satellites that, you know, while you have plans to dock them with certain and service certain satellites, adversaries of the United States or could either, you know, take advantage of this and, and do similar things, but maybe not follow the same rules or think that we could use these satellites as weapons. And I know, Pavia, in your your previous role at Ida, you talked about this quite a bit and, and thought about this. Maybe you can uh, help me suss this out.
2: Everything you pointed out to, uh, Caitlin, is a, is a real concern. And no countries have national-level OSAM policies, let alone international agreements on what is, you know, what is a civil use versus um, disruptive use for other reasons. But there are, there is, growing activity, especially by industry, to develop conversations around regulation and standards. So, so we know, uh, and, and we are not surprised, the United States leads an internationally oriented consortium called the Consortium for Execution of Rendezvous and Servicing Operations, or CONFERS. Uh, it is currently funded by DARPA, but is eventually expected to be member funded. The European Union funds a Europe-focused uh, initiative called Per Aspora. And there is an industry led uh, safety and sustainability focused uh, activity called Space Safety Coalition. So I think we need things like this to develop the norms of behavior uh, and best practices around civil and, and national security applications of OSAM. It's an evolving area. It will take a lot of time, a lot of discussion. We have uh, international fora that can enable some of these discussions. These co- coalitions I mentioned are working on creating some of these norms. And I think we just need to continue to work more on this to make sure that, you know, we don't, we don't stop developing a, a, a fundamentally disruptive technology because it has, you know, both uh, civil, commercial and national security uh, applications.
3: Let me add uh, so, some thoughts also on, on top of everything you said there. You know, the, the other thing, and we, we've gained through some experience on our MEV 1 and 2, is right. There's, it would it, be very difficult for someone to use a robotic vehicle to sneak up and you know, try to do something you know, uh, nefarious with another spacecraft. There's a number of things that make that incredibly challenging. One is, I mean, there's really no, no hiding in space, right? Uh, you, you can see, see them coming pretty easily, right? Any, any observations on the ground can see that coming. And many of our spacecraft in orbit, maybe, you know, at some point, they're going to start having neighborhood watch and be able to see what's, what's around them. So, so you have that advance notice. But number two is just coming in close to another satellite requires a lot of coordination, to do that without either satellite having difficulties. You know, so when we did our MEV-1 and MEV-2 rendezvous and, and docking with the Inelsat satellite, it required a lot of coordination. And, you know, we, we spent months and months doing compatibility assessments between the two vehicles to make sure that when we got there and we reached out and touched them, that it didn't rip us apart, you know, our MEDs apart, and that our vehicles could, could work together. And just the process of coming within, you know, a kilometer and shorter down to 100 meters and, and on in to, to contact There's different aspects all along that pathway that affect both vehicles that you really need to be aware of. And and you need to work that system cooperatively or it's not going to work, right? A robotic vehicle is not just going to sneak up on another satellite in the middle of the night and grab it. That isn't really feasible.
0: So I think it's interesting, though, that we're talking about the lack of policy and norms around these activities. But Joe, you told us earlier that we're working towards, you know, standards in, in 2025, where all satellites will be ready, you know, by design for on-orbit refueling. So it seems to me that we're, we're moving towards a world where this is a more commonplace activity. And 2025 is, is not that far away, I guess, in the grand scheme of agreeing on policies and agreeing on norms. So I'm just kind of curious how we kind of reconcile the goals of this is a future we want to pursue, but being cognizant of these risks and the need to have agreement around activities.
3: So, you know, my my comment, I think, is that, you know, our vision is that by 2025, all satellites are prepared for servicing in some form. Refueling is one of those, and, and we will have a proposed open standard available by that time. And and we intend to fly that open standard on our mission robotic vehicle that we're launching in 2024. And we're working with others on that same interface that we propose to take out as an open standard. Maybe the industry will adopt it. Maybe they won't. But that is our objective, is to try to create for that particular item an open industry standard. And I think there's good progress being made towards that. And it will help the total market grow, right? So it's not just about Northrop Grumman and Space Logistics here, it's about growing the entire market and growing the pie, right? If we have an open standard there that all members can, uh, can, can agree to, right? it's going to help grow the market in its entirety.
0: So one of our episodes that we, we talked uh, previously, we talked about commercial remote sensing and the growth of relatively affordable uh, small satellites that can be rapidly you know, built and deployed into space. Uh, And so I wonder, is there kind of a cost inflection point, you know, given the preparations that you mentioned for NEB 1 and 2? Is this something that we target at, you know, large national assets, GPS satellites, or or things that we can't rapidly replace? Like, is there an inflection point in pursuing this capability for different types of satellites or systems?
3: Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, room for all of the above, right? There's going to be uh, satellites that are going to be very small and, and disposable. Uh, there are needs for those. There are applications for that. That servicing those spacecraft may not make sense. You may there might still be a need for debris removal of those if they aren't able to dispose of themselves properly. You know, and then there's going to be the need for the larger spacecraft and the longer life assets. So so there's a diversity of needs out there for different applications. Certainly, not all of them will be appropriate for servicing.
2: So Lindsay, you, you brought up a couple of points that, that I want to unpack them a little bit. You mentioned smaller satellites, or you know, I mean CubeSats being an example, and that made me wonder about whether OSAM is a similarly disruptive technology as CubeSats were. It sure seems that way. I mean, so so disruptive innovation, as you know, if you look at the works of Clayton Christensen, is is, is exemplified in OSAM in, in three principal ways. Initially you see poorer performance. Right. So just like small satellites, initial satellites were just basically beep sets. Right. Uh, Similarly, initial uh, manufacturing in space was was essentially, you know, we were making wrenches in space. But technology in in a disruptive innovation moves fast up the performance curve till it actually surpasses mainstream. So, you know, you talked about that at that tipping point or something. So where is that point coming? It is I mean, we don't know if it's five years out or 10 years out, but it is certainly uh, something we see, we have seen in other disruptive innovations. Uh, another characteristic of disruptive innovation you see in, in OSAM, and actually uh, Joe's company is an example of that, is it t- typically emerges from non-traditional sources. And there is pushback from the mainstream. So CubeSats are a really good example. They emerge in academia. Not at NASA, not in its you know, prime contractor world. It was this, you know, essentially a community college working with Stanford. And again, I, I see this many of the OSAM innovations happening in, in these startups, in, the, in these companies that, that are out of the traditional ecosystem of space, you know, a company like Orbit Fab that are developing gas stations in space or, you know, Joe's company. A third one is, and I think this came up in something Caitlin had said earlier, and disruptive innovations, including OSAM, are typically driven by enabling technologies. And I think Joe mentioned this as well, you know, areas like robotics and automation, AI, these are things that will really accelerate um, how quickly OSAM
0: technologies turn into, you know, useful capabilities. Well, Babia, um, I don't think I could have like teed that up for you better if I had like written the script myself, because you, I mean, you summarized three giant themes That Caitlin and I have been discussing across all of these emerging technologies that are really disrupting the way that we're thinking about about these capabilities. You know, the speed, emergence from non traditional sources, and the intertwining and being driven by enabling technologies. You know, our first episode was on AI and machine learning, and that's come up in every episode since. So thank you for summarizing why Caitlin and I are here uh, doing this series.
1: Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but I just want to make sure that we get the last word from you guys of anything we didn't ask you about, anything you'd like to re-emphasize for the audience or any of upcoming work or projects we should be watching for.
3: I'll put out a few comments here that yeah, on orbit servicing isn't only about extending the life of a of a satellite or repairing or upgrading or debris removal. You know, these are all very important. But it's, it's really, it's that paradigm shift we've been talking about in how we will conduct space operations in the future and, and how it will impact every aspect of that. We believe on-orbit servicing is a transformational national imperative to, to sustain US preeminence in space. It, it provides a step change in defensive resiliency and deterrence that can help space remain a safe and sustainable environment. And, and our vision for on orbit servicing enhances existing missions, enables new missions, and it is beneficial to multiple constellations for commercial, civil, and national security sectors. So, I guess those are the thoughts I'd like to, to leave you with.
2: So, I agree with, with everything Joe said. And, you know, of course, now I, I have the NASA hat. You know, I'm part of the Biden administration. Uh, And I do think a lot about our place in the world. And so I think a key issue to to think through in the OSAM uh, domain is global activity in the area. Research shows that there are more than 100 organizations engaged in OSAM-related tech development in 17 countries or regions around the world. Of these seventeen, nine, you know, including Russia and China, Germany, Canada, other countries, uh, have significant activities. And uh, some countries such as Germany have or, or are rapidly developing the underlying technologies, even if they're not actively pursuing or leading OSAM missions. You know, countries like Japan have concentrated on specific use cases like relocation and debris removal. So I think it is just really important to see how the world is evolving. And of course, putting on my national power hat, I think you know we need to make sure that the United States is pursuing the capabilities uh, to innovate and maintain our nation's leadership in space to address key challenges of our generation. You know, climate change being one, and create a new workforce training the technology that enables jobs around the country. And again, our preeminence globally has to remain. Both our you know partner country, like Germany and Japan, but also our adversaries, uh, China and, and Russia and others, are. Making really fast progress. So, so, there isn't a moment to rest on our laurels, even though we are the farthest in the world. Um, we need to continue to keep up the effort, and um, I'm, I'm ready for it. And I hope you and our audiences as well.
1: Well, thank you both so much for this wonderful discussion. As we've said every episode, we could just keep talking your ear off about all of this.
0: Well, Caitlin, that was super exciting. I learned a lot. What were your big takeaways?
1: So I think on-orbit servicing, assembly, manufacturing is one of the coolest space technologies that is emerging. You know, we talked to Joe, whose company sent the first couple of satellites up there from a commercial company to service satellites in space. Basically, what they did is they're extending the life of other satellites in space by adding propellant. I'm trying to think it'd be like towing a truck somewhere instead of having that truck use its own fuel. Very cool. And the potential for it, as we learned through Joe and Pavia's discussion, is just incredible. Like you can Fix things, you can build them in space, which will decrease the mass, which will decrease the cost. Help you overcome that tyranny of launch. And you can build, theoretically, from materials you find in space. So that's why, you know, finding water on the moon is really exciting because you can assemble in space, theoretically, fuel because of the water. The thing about on-orbit servicing, despite it being super exciting, is that there's a lot of security concerns that I'm not sure if we really talked too much about in this session, but it's something that I study quite a bit, at least right now. I'm writing a paper on it. Hopefully it's out by this podcast and we'll link it in the, the series. But the fundamental skill or technology movement for on-orbit servicing, so being able to maneuver in space is the same type of skill and technology you would need for a, what we determine, a co-orbital counter space weapon. So a satellite on orbit that is targeting another satellite on orbit needs to get close enough to that other satellite to do damage, whether physically through like using a robotic arm to grapple with it and push it out of its orbit or to somehow disrupt the sensors or you could literally just run your satellite into the other one on orbit by putting it in its orbital path. Yeah. So
0: and we talked about that, you know, the potential to pick up and move satellites with like a grappling arm or to ran them. And, you know, we talked about we have decent visibility into space and we would see potentially the other satellite coming. But I think what on said was whether or not you see it coming, it's still coming all the same. And so you know, that potential to have adversaries messing with your satellites or moving them, like, do you have much recourse? Like if you see an enemy satellite coming to mess with yours, or do you just have to kind of sit and it goes as it goes?
1: Well, it's challenging because if you move out of the way, which is kind of the natural response, if you were running at me, I would probably step to the side and let you hit the wall. Moving out of the way costs fuel. And then as we kind of described, there's only a limited amount of fuel on a satellite, and therefore you're going to lose some of its life by moving it too much. And so it's, it's a pretty big risk factor. Also, our space situational awareness technology, so knowing where satellites are in space, is not that good. When satellites get too close to each other, they actually look like the same satellite. We just can't see, you know, if you think about perspective of like train tracks going into the distance, at some point they merge. It's the same with us looking at satellites in space. When they get close enough at a far enough distance, they look like the same train track, they look like the same satellite. So we can't really tell what that other satellite is doing.
0: Oh, that does make sense because I do remember, you know, thinking back to news articles that I've seen that has painted that picture of like, We thought there would be a close pass or we knew there would be a close pass and there was a lot of uncertainty around how close would it actually be, would it cause disruption and then, you know, the outcome would be report of, you know, perhaps nothing happened and it was fine, but it was still really close. I mean, because it is important to remember, it's not just like me stepping out of the way because you're trying to hit me. It's, you know, you are traveling at, you know, many, many miles per hour, many, many miles over the earth and... You know, it's simultaneously is a large amount of space, but like it can be really close when you're talking about passing within a couple miles of each other at a distance that is, you know, that many miles above the, the Earth's surface.
1: Yeah, and it takes, you know, hours to days to actually move a satellite. So it's not something that you can wait until the last minute to do. So something that, you know, the national security community should be concerned with is, how to determine the intent of these types of maneuvers they're called rendezvous and proximity operations rpos just to throw another you know acronym out trying to determine intent and trying to think about different ways we can build best practices or norms or even establish things like keep out zones so of like you can't come within this many kilometers of my satellite otherwise i'll know something's up unless you've already told me Or we have an agreement, we have a service agreement because maybe you're going to come and give me some extra life or fix something that's broken.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that was, one, I was just really struck by how new all of this was. So when we're talking about having a Kitty Hawk moment and how long we've been in space, and in some ways it feels like things are very established. And like you said, there's maybe a little bit more of an established set of norms and standards and pattern of life, but then there is this, kind of uncharted territory of, you know, having the very first mission extensions. And so it's really just an interesting kind of comparison. But I have a question. Where do the MEVs go? Do they come back to Earth? Do they stay in space? Mm. Like, where do they go once they do their job?
1: Great question. It's pretty new. But I imagine they, if they're out in geostationary or geosynchronous orbit, if they're out in geo— they're so far away, they're not going to come back to Earth to de- deorbit in the Earth's atmosphere and burn up.
0: OK, so they're definitely not coming back to be used again.
1: Not if they're that far out. Got it. If they're maybe in LEO, low Earth orbit, they might. But if they're that far out, they're probably going to put themselves into a, what we call the graveyard orbit which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's an orbit farther, a little bit farther away than the, like, high-profile (laughs) geo-orbit. Lindsay's making a sad face. It's where satellites go to die. die. It is where satellites go to die. And it's because that orbit is so valuable that we have to keep it clean. And that's part of these on-orbit servicing missions. This technology can also enable end-of-life disposal basically. So moving these satellites into this graveyard orbit so that new satellites can come and take their place.
0: Wait, so why is this space so valuable? Is there like risk of clutter?
1: Sure. Well, it's it's finite. So there is risk of clutter. And it's really valuable, as I explained at the beginning, because you're orbiting at the same time that the Earth is spinning, you're basically parked over one spot over the earth. And that's really valuable for communication satellites mostly, because you're looking at just one spot in the earth, you're always going to be looking at that place. So it's easier for ground station communication. And it provides stuff like direct TV. Because if you think about low earth orbit, you know, a satellite in low earth orbit can make a full pass around the earth every 90 minutes, sometimes longer, depending on where it is. But Think about if you tried to have DirecTV and every couple minutes you had to... Had to reconnect because your satellites moved out, right? Yeah. So in order to make that plausible, you have to send up thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit, which is what SpaceX is doing with Starlink, their Wi-Fi service from space. But it makes a lot more sense to be away up in geo because it's a consistent signal. However, you are much farther away, so that signal does have to be a lot stronger to get back to Earth.
0: And so this is something that we kind of referenced was previously, and it sounds like mostly currently, there is no on-orbit refueling. And so my satellite goes to space, potentially into this highly valuable orbiting space in geo with a finite amount of fuel. So it has a finite lifespan. And then once it runs out of fuel, it's dead, we launch a new one, theoretically. That's how it and works. so then this could actually give us the ability to say, like, I'm going to go clean up that orbit and move all of the old satellites that have died out of the way and clear up this really valuable real estate?
1: You could. We call that active debris removal. But I think what's also really exciting about on-orbit servicing is the potential for us to rethink how we use space. Right now, if you're sending up a satellite to do a certain mission, let's say that mission is communications, because that's what we've been talking about. You build it, takes about 5 to 10 years, depending on how big it is. You launch it, and then it's up in space for probably like 10 to 15 years. So if you think about how old that technology really is that is continually providing communications and how expensive it is, as we said, bigger satellite, bigger mass, more expensive. But if you had on-orbit servicing, you could launch smaller satellites to these high-profile orbits with kind of like... US, I, I think about it like USB ports in the fact that you can like plug different types of things into them. And so if you send it up, cell towers is also a good example of like you can take out and update and plug back in a new node. And so we could design satellites to be updated and to plug in new nodes or you just launch the servicing satellite with 10 new nodes and the servicing satellite drops them off where they're supposed to be.
0: Got it. And that's the important part where Joe and Bavia were talking about open standards and having an agreed upon set of open standards that are not locked into one particular vendor, but are used across the industry because the USB works because companies have agreed upon we're all going to build and operate against this open standard so that when I plug in a USB you know, on device one versus device two versus device three, it works. And so that was a really interesting point where he was saying, you know, we're working towards having open standards on refueling mm-hmm. and open standards on this kind of modular build out. Um, and it really brings together the picture of like, you know, there's commercial entities, there's private sector entities, there's public sector entities that all have to be on board to really build this ecosystem out in a way that it, it works in this envisioned plug and play model
1: and the challenge is that not very many people are doing this so while they're trying to develop open standards i don't think they're getting that much feedback because no one else is doing it so people might you know naysayers or people who like to poke holes in things might be doing that to these open standards but not based on any actual developments they're making just based on kind of opinion
0: Yeah, I wish I had asked them while we had them online. Because there are so few providers, is there an incentive to not move to open standards? So does that landscape of having a few providers actually incentivize what we would call, essentially, the the outcome is vendor lock-in. It's when you have a proprietary design to like one vendor, and now you are stuck with that design or that interface moving forward. And because there's You know, as you said, there's not a lot of players. It's a relatively new space. How do we balance this dynamic of building to open standards and avoiding vendor lock-in, where we've seen vendor lock appear in a lot of kind of similar fields, at least in the defense space, but moving towards open standards?
1: What I think Pavia would not obviously not want that she works for the government and I actually have talked to Joe about this before and he also does not want that he thinks there's a lot of ground to be gained and a lot of opportunity to have these open standards and his company really is pushing for them and at the forefront of this because it increases market opportunity for everybody right if everybody's using both plug and the outlet standard then any servicing vehicle could service any satellite You're not locked into just vendor contracts.
0: Yeah, and so like that economic value towards a open standard may actually be far greater than any one provider sees in terms of being like the person that has the standard or the interface, which is really interesting. This is like, A brave new world in system design and space systems and and national security.
1: I'm glad you're as jazzed about it as I am.
0: I am. Like I said, I'm a product of the space program, so I feel a very special affinity towards this.
1: I love it. Well, as we wrap up today, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes, more about our guests, and anything else we mentioned. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review uh, this series wherever you listen to podcasts. Whenever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in two weeks.